0: Good morning. It is good to be in the house of the Lord today. Uh, If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6, we'll be reading verses 1 to 8. I see many new faces here, and not just the Wontrop and, uh, I guess, Hannah's family. I don't actually know your maiden name. Um, Your clan, Uh, welcome to all of you. Uh, Also, there's, uh, uh, I think there's a few other folks that are not part of this clan. So, uh, uh, church family. If you see somebody that you do, don't know, please do welcome them. Uh, and don't just assume that they're here only for a weekend uh, for the baptism. So uh, do please um, welcome them. As Dr. Silvernail told you last week, uh, we're starting a series called The Time of Trouble. We explored last week um, depression, and this week we're talking about guilt, and we'll be sort of headed through various other troubles that are common to all of us. Um... And, you know, I have a feeling that all of these sermons are going to be a little uncomfortable to talk about. Uh, They're not the most fun topics to talk about, uh, but I think they're important ones to talk about. And so, you know, it's important for us to hear each week how the gospel reveals God's goodness uh, to us in the midst of hard things and uh, the things that we tend to be ashamed about. And I think our passage today doesn't shy away from the hard things, but gives us a robust and helpful word for our guilt and shame. So let's turn our attention to God's word. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple, And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. Let us pray. Father, we come to you this morning with a whole host of distractions. Life gets in the way of our worship so many times, but Lord, I pray that we would be like Isaiah, beholding the majesty of you, the Lord God Almighty. We see you high and lifted up as you receive an endless chorus of praise. And Father, what a privilege it is to be able to come and to hear your words to us. And to even to recognize that we are a people of unclean lips. And Lord, Father, would you have mercy upon us and show us the same kindness and grace that you showed to Isaiah. For we come in the name of the one who has taken away our guilt and atoned for our sin in the very name of Jesus. Amen. So I want to just sort of start by um, acknowledging that this sermon series is going to be tricky for all of us. Um, It's tricky for us uh, pastors, but also for you listeners. You know, we tend to start off our sermons lightheartedly with a, a story that's funny to sort of break the ice or something like that, but with, you know, topics like depression and guilt... Uh, there are so many things that sort of trigger our thoughts, um, and it sort of becomes a difficult exercise to avoid saying something that will get you stuck. You know, you know how it is. You, you, you hear something, and then you just sort of perseverate on it. You can't get past it, and you just sort of get stuck in your guilt or in your depression or whatever it is. And you know, guilt is such a universal thing that everyone feels guilt somewhere in their lives. And it generally doesn't come in seasons. But rather, we deal with feelings of guilt every day of, of every year for the rest of our lives. Great. Awesome. And this is uh, you know, tricky for you, because as you listen, as we talk about guilt, as we talk about um, sort of our condition, it'll be uh, your job to avoid getting stuck, but to sort of stay with me and to not sort of get stuck on your particular guiltiness this morning. And so with all of that said, I figured I'd tell you a story about my own life and how uh, I deal with uh, guilt in, um, at one point. And I think that it parallels the course of our passage pretty well. Um, so it's the summer after my freshman year in college. Uh, I'm working as a camp counselor at a nerd camp. Um, it's a camp where kids decide during their summer vacation to go and take academic classes five days a week, eight hours a day for three weeks, and they pay like $3,000 to do this, right? And so you're like, this is just a special breed that shows up. And uh, I'm on on the residential side of things, and, um, you know, as camp counselors, we plan activities. um, We, uh, you know put on events and tournaments and dances, and yes, dances is sort of a counterintuitive sort of activity for nerds. You you just sort of think of like Steve Urkels just trying to dance to top 40 hits. It's just a weird thing, but we did it, right? And the weekends are the hardest time for the residential side of things Um, because you have a whole weekend of just putting on event after event, after event, after event, and it's really long and it's really arduous. And for those of you, that have you know sort of put on these weekends uh, uh, have been a camp counselor, have put on like an event like an all church retreat or a wedding, you know that the tasks of planning these sorts of events are not like w- hard in of themselves. It's just hard to plan simply because there's a million things that you have to plan, right? And so I was put on uh, in charge of planning one of these weekends and lo and behold, what did I do? I procrastinated and it's like Thursday and I have nothing planned and we uh, have nothing ordered for our supplies and I have no responsibilities for all, of our job, for all of my coworkers and I'm just like, oh, it's Thursday. I should probably get started on this weekend since it starts tomorrow, right? And so I'm in sort of desperate panic mode, and I'm flying around all over the place trying to get things done, and my boss uh, comes up to me and says, Frank, stop. It's too late. You've dropped the ball. i was just like, ooh, that's not good. And what's worse is that he's a friend of mine from college at Princeton, right? And, you know, as a Princeton student, I prided myself greatly on getting my work done. I was a competent, capable person that I put my trust in my own abilities, right? And so he said something even more humiliating after he said you had dropped the ball. He said, I knew that you were going to drop the ball yesterday. And so I've started to plan with my coworkers, and we're taking over the weekend from you. I was like, oh, no. And you know, when, when you don't get something planned, right, what am I thinking in the midst of him telling me, Frank, you need to stop. You've dropped the ball. you failed. What I'm thinking of at light speed, I'm thinking of all the consequences of my actions. It's going to be a terrible weekend. All the kids are going to be miserable. They're going to blame me. My coworkers are going to be miserable because they have miserable kids, and it's going to just be a terrible weekend. And, and who do I have to blame? No one but myself. And so my, uh, my boss took over this weekend and planned it for me. And the whole weekend I spent uh, just acutely aware of my guilt. I had blown it. And thankfully my friend did a great job um, planning the weekend. The kids had a blast and the other counselors had a good time sort of putting on the activities that he had planned. Um, And all in all, the camp didn't skip a beat. The students, in fact, had no clue that I had messed up. They had fun, and they had even thanked me uh, for being part of the team that made the weekend a blast, not knowing that I had almost nearly screwed everything up. And that narrative, that story, pretty well parallels um, the passage that we have this morning in Isaiah 6. We're going to get bad news that we failed, and we're going to feel a little bit of Isaiah's guilt and shame, and then we're going to get good news. Like my friend, God is not content to leave us in our guilty feelings, but he takes away our guilt by covering it over and inviting us into his work. So we're going to divide this passage up into two parts, verses one through five are the bad news, verses six through eight are the good news, which is great because bad news should always come first, you should always end on good news, Uh, but before we get to the bad news, we've got to define our terms really quickly. So just what is guilt? What produces it? And how is it different from shame? So guilt. Guilt is a feeling or conviction of wrongdoing. But it's not just when you commit a crime or do something wrong or fail to do something right. It also comes when you don't measure up to a standard. When you realize that you're not as good as you ought to be. And so you see seen the standard and you don't measure up and so you feel guilty. And so we've got two kinds of guilt to deal with. The first is external to us. It convicts us of what we do. That's sort of usually what we talk about when we talk about uh, guilt. And the second is internal. It condemns us for who we are. This is what we call shame. Of these two, I think shame is what troubles us the most. None of us are perfect. um, And it's that inner accusation that reminds us of our guiltiness before the standards that we have for ourselves. And that self-loathing that we have is a form of guilt. We are guilty of not being who we ought to be. And a quick aside, um, there's another factor that sort of complicates our relationship with guilt. Uh, When it comes to the standards that are set, there are both true standards and false standards. Uh, A true one might be something like a civil law, like you shouldn't speed or you shouldn't you know, murder, or you shouldn't steal, or something like that, or one of the commandments. Surprise! Two of those that I just mentioned are commandments, um, and but the calling that we have on our lives to obedience and holiness is also a true standard. But there are plenty of false ones as well. False standards are based on lies, and they are often subtle. You know, they look and sound right and good, but they're simply not true. For instance, my sermon this morning. I woke up this morning feeling guilty that I hadn't put more time in preparing the sermon. right? And actually, during the course of this, uh, this worship service, I have sat there feeling guilty, thinking who am I to stand up and preach to you? And is it true that I could have spent more time preparing my sermon? Well, yes, I could have. But is, is it true that my sermon could be better? Well, yes, it most certainly could be better. But is it also true that spending more time on my sermon was what I should have been doing? And that's not necessarily true. Sure, I'm called to preach good and faithful sermons, but I'm also called to be a good father and a good husband. And it's certainly possible that it would, it might have been unrighteous for me to spend more time on the sermon, um, which would caused me to neglect my family. Do you see the lie that my guilt is based on? It says that what I could have done in this one small area of my life is what I should have done, even considering everything else in my life. We sort of tunnel vision on one thing and forget everything else. But as my professor once said at a seminary, well, I hope and pray that you will learn well and earn an A. It's sometimes it isn't righteous to get an A but I'd much rather you earn a righteous C than an unrighteous A. And that's just sort of one example of a false standard. There's a bazillion others. These are false standards because they don't take into account the Lord's call upon your life. And sure, there are arguments about being good stewards of the gifts that have been given to us and all of that, but I think we tend to make our hopes and our dreams into standards and requirements. And there's an important distinction between disappointment And guilt, one that I think we blur all too often. But to go back to guilt and shame, I actually think that both kinds of guilt, both uh, the internal one and the external one, lead to the same place. Um, Regardless of what it's about, whether you do something or who you are, it all leads to the same place. Matthew 12.33 says that a tree is known by its fruit. Good trees only produce good fruit, and bad trees only produce bad fruit. And if we look at the fruit of our lives, which is gossip, slander, judgmentalism, and all the rest, and that says something powerful about us, the tree. And so the things that we do tells us about who we are. And so really, all guilt leads to the same place, and it leads to shame. It leads to you having a problem with who you are. And honestly, we expect that. You know, we move, we do that small move from guilt to shame all the time. For instance, um, a number of years back, I ran a red and I got T-boned. And I had uh, a good friend of mine sitting in the passenger seat and um, we got hit on her side of the car. And after the, the accident, I just couldn't look her in the eyes. And the phrase that sort of dropped from my lips over and over again was, I can't believe I just did that. I can't believe I just did that. How could I have done that? And so I moved from guilt to shame. And we find ourselves in a place where we can't escape our guilt because it's not just what we do, but who we are that's messed up. And so it's no wonder that guilt and shame are troubles that plague us. Because we have no one to blame except for ourselves when we we mess up or don't measure up. You know, it's a problem that we can't get away from because the problem is us. Rosy picture, right? Great way to start. And unfortunately for us, when it rains, it pours because we haven't even gotten to the passage yet. We haven't even seen what the Lord says about our guilt. And so... (laughs) <laughs> this passage has a l- more bad news for us and then, and that bad news is that it's worse than we think In fact, far worse than we think. This is verses 1 through 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one uh, called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook. And the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So why is it worse than we think? For two reasons. First, we don't understand the holiness of God. When we think about God, I don't think we have a good grasp of just how holy he is. We toss around sort of theological truths like, oh, he's perfect, he's holy, he's love, like it's no big deal when we think of god we think of someone uh, we think of god as someone who is just a little bit better than me he's just got it together right but that's not it at all holiness means literally to set apart and so the seraphim aren't pra- aren't just praising him for his righteousness they aren't just praising him for his perfection they aren't just praising him because he's omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent they're praising him because he is god and they are not. In Hebrew, the way that you emphasize something is you repeat it. And so to say something is very holy, you would say, holy, holy. And in the whole Old Testament, the only adjective that is repeated three times is this one, holy, holy, holy. It's as if you were saying that God is holy beyond imagination, holy to the nth degree, holiness that in fact puts holiness to shame, right? Right? I mean, come on. The seraphim themselves are no joke. They, they're glorious in their own right, made specifically to offer praise to the Lord. Literally, seraphim means burning ones. And so they're so glorious that they appear to be awash in flame like Sinai was when the glory of the Lord rested upon the mountain. And even these extraordinary, glorious creatures are so overwhelmed by the glory and holiness of God that they instinctively cover themselves up. They have to be shielded from how amazing God is. That's how unworthy they feel because God is so infinitely worthy. And unfortunately for us, God is the standard by which we will be judged. God is the truest of standards. His very presence is convicting to us. And if you were here last week, we saw uh, Dr. Dave told us uh, that God's presence is a comfort in, in our darkness, in our depression, and that's true. His presence with us is a balm to our souls. But in this case, here in Isaiah, it's 180 degrees from that. God is so good and so beautiful and so amazing and so holy that even the smallest imperfections within us are magnified. Our ugliness gets uglier. You know, we understand this principle well. We see it all the time. When we stand next to a a pretty person, we feel ugly, you know. Smart people make us feel dumb. Hardworking people make us feel lazy. Okay, uh, you know those of you that uh, have multiple kids, uh, ki- moms and dads with one kid are like, "Wow, you're amazing!" Like you, you chase around a million different kids, and we can barely handle just one, right? And this, and you know, the the best place we see this is is at weddings. There's there's a reason why there's a stigma around bridesmaid dresses, right? The bride chooses these horrible, ugly dresses to make herself look better in comparison. <laughs> you know, And well, you know, we're not the bride in Isaiah 6. We're bridesmaids dressed in dresses that make all of our imperfections stand out. Our sins literally clothe us in ugliness. And the smallest of sins are magnified to the point of humiliation. If we were in the presence of God like Isaiah was, we would be so ashamed of even this, the widest of lies, you know, the smallest of sins. But it gets even worse. Remember I said that there are two reasons why it's worse than we think. The second reason is that we're not even close to it, uh, even close to as good as we think we are. If we recall, Dr. Dave pointed out that there's a story from Mojnik that's pretty embarrassing to me. Um, this was last week, okay? Uh, apparently, I'm really terrible about uh, spelling the word bed, B-E-D. It's really easy, right? But apparently, I'm terrible at it. Because in a days of delirious uh, exhaustion, I tried to get everyone at the retreat to spell it out B-E-A-D. It was weird. I was like, who do we want? What do we want? Bed. What do we, when do we want it now, right? And it was like, B-E-A-D, shame. <laughs> You know, my Princeton education was worthless. <laughs> I pride myself in, like, intellect, and it, I just simply am not as smart as I think I was. I mean, like, bet. Like, the easiest, one of the easiest words to spell, and I can't even spell it, right? And so one of my greatest strengths doesn't seem to be as good as I thought, and Isaiah is similarly undone when he looks at himself in light of God. Who is Isaiah? Isaiah is the prophet of God. In the previous chapter in Isaiah 5, he has spent the whole chapter, all 30 verses, pointing out the sins in others, and now in chapter 6, he pronounced the seventh woe. Uh, he, he had pronounced six woes to the wicked in chapter 5, and now in chapter 6, he's getting to the seventh. And it's the woe that sort of completes the set. For sin is not just in others, but in himself. And if you will notice me in verse 5, what he, look what he pronounces the woe upon. He confesses that his lips are unclean. And this can be taken to mean that he has a foul mouth. Now remember, Isaiah is the prophet of God, and so he's God's messenger to his people. And he's sent to proclaim God's word to his people. And so you you could actually say that Isaiah is the literal mouthpiece of God. That through Isaiah's mouth... God speaks. And so you might imagine that Isaiah is rather confident in the holiness and purity of his mouth, like I was in my spelling ability, you know? Surely if there was any part of Isaiah that was righteous, any part of Isaiah that was pure, it would have been his mouth, his speech, but when Isaiah comes into the presence of the Lord, he sees his guilt. Even the thing that he would consider the most consecrated to the Lord, the most pure, the most holy, the thing that he has the most confidence in, that thing is found to be unclean. And so he's no different in his mouth than the rest of the wayward Israelites. Sure, his mouth might not be as dirty as the, rest, as the next guy, but that's sort of like comparing dirty diapers, Right? Sure, one might be less full of poop than the other, but both sure as heck are not clean. And so let's recap. Not only is the bar far higher than we think, but we are far more underachieving than we think as well. It's kind of comical, really, how far short we we fall. It's a testament to our ability to uh, blind ourselves to our sin that we don't struggle with guilt more we're really good at rationalizing and blame shifting and flat-out ignoring the fact that we're all hot messes or dumpster fires. And I can't help but think about the folks that go on like talent shows like American Idol and America's Got Talent and the ones that are hopelessly tone-deaf but think that they're, ge- that they're genuinely amazing singers. We're like those people. The gap between their ability and the standard is so massive And it's far more massive than they think. And so it is with us. Now you might be thinking, please Frank, it's been like depressing like last 15 minutes. I I think I remember you saying something about good news. Praise the Lord that there is good news. Praise the Lord that the Bible didn't end at Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5 with woe is me for I am lost. And if you would look with me at verses 6 to 8. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Uh, Send me. You know, the good news is that this good news is better than we could imagine that God is far more gracious and loving than we could imagine. Think about this. Isaiah, the prophet, brings nothing but wreckage and foul-mouthed sin to the table. And so what does God do? He he doesn't do what he has every right to do, which is just obliterate Isaiah with wrath. He could do that. He probably should do that. But rather, instead, he sends one of his servants to bring salvation. And so the seraphim brings this burning coal using a pair of tongs, uh, tongs, and I love the detail that the seraphim used tongs, because it's not, uh, it's not that the, the coal is too hot for him. Uh, remember, the seraphim is literally a burning one, so it's not too hot for him. For him. And so the, the, the detail of the fact that he used tongs really sort of crystallizes exactly what is being, uh, being sort of explained here. That the tongs are used because of the surpassing holiness of the coal. It comes from the altar where sins are atoned for, and so the coal is consecrated and made holy by God. And this holy object comes into contact with the unholy lips of Isaiah. And what's strange here is that Isaiah is cleansed instead of the coal becoming unclean. Normally when clean things come into contact with unclean things, the clean things becomes unclean. But not so here. The Lord's holiness swallows up Isaiah's guilt and cleanses him. But how does that work? When the seraphim declares that Isaiah's guilt has been taken away and his sin atoned for, how does that happen? After all, the coal is just a coal. You know, It doesn't do anything in of itself. So how are sin and guilt taken away from Isaiah? Well, the same way that sin and guilt are taken from you and me. In the words of John the Baptist in John one twenty nine, Behold, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the one who lived the spotless, perfect life that we needed to have lived. And so when he went to the cross, he did so to take upon himself our sin. He bore the shame and wrath that were reserved for us, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. God laid him, Jesus, upon the altar, and that by his blood, we would be washed. And First Peter 2.24 says that by his wounds, we are healed. And so the Bible has a robust answer to your guilt. It doesn't brush aside uh, your guilt and say, it uh, don't worry about it, but acknowledges that you are in fact guilty. It's realistic that a price must be paid to answer our guilt, and that price is paid by Jesus. And so Isaiah six and the rest of the Bible declares that Jesus is the answer for man's guilt. For by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, and so uh, were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. You see, it's not just that the Lord takes away our guilt but he also gives us his righteousness. He doesn't just take away your guilt and atone for your sins, as verse 7 says, but he does more. He makes you righteous. And that being made righteous is often not something that we want to experience. Think about it. It's a burning coal that touches Isaiah's lips. The pain must have been exquisite. It's sort of like the pain that Eustace must have felt in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis and Almost, I hope all of you have read this book, right? Yusuf is a mean boy, and he's been transformed to outwardly display what is an inward reality. His meanness has now become an outward reality, and now he looks like a dragon. And now that he's able to see just the wreckage of his own heart, he desperately desires to be restored to being a boy. And so Aslan begins to tear away the dragon flesh from him, and Lewis describes it this way, the very first tear he made was so deep, and I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began to pull, and when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab of a sore place, it hurts like bilio, but it's such fun to see it come away. Sanctification, which is being made holy, is often not a pleasant experience. But oh the wonder when the Lord is finished with us. When the Lord has finished the work of sanctifying you in that, when he has finished with setting you free from that guilt, from that shame. And that brings us to part two of the good news, that we get to be a part of God's plan. You know, we look to the cross for our life, and rightly so, but the cross is nothing without the resurrection. And those two are nothing if they aren't good news unless it's applied to me. And it's not just that our guilt and sin have been taken care of at the cross, but that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, as Jesus, as Ephesians 1 tells us we've been adopted as sons through Christ Jesus and we're not left by ourselves but we're brought into the family we now stand with the lord and since we're on team Jesus we get to participate in what Jesus is doing look at verse 8 lord asks who will go on behalf of god and who stands up and volunteers but isaiah and what a change in just 3 verses in verse 5, Isaiah is so cognizant, so aware of his unworthiness to, that, to be even near God, let alone God's prophet, God's messenger. But here in verse 8, Isaiah boldly volunteers. Remember how my friend and boss planned that weekend for me? Remember how the camp didn't skip a beat and the kids thanked me for that weekend? It took me until literally this week uh, to realize what my friend had done for me. It literally took me 13 years to realize that not only did my friend cover up my failure with a well-planned and well-executed weekend, but I also got to receive at least some of the credit for all the fun that had happened. I got to be part of the team that won the weekend. And so it is with our guilt and shame. When we bring our guilt and shame to Jesus, he not only deals with it, but he frees us to step into the good works that he has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. That we get to stand with the Lord in victory. And just, as I, was, just as, I was, as I was invited to be a part of the team, so too is Isaiah. But the big question is, how can he do this? How can he do this in his sin? Well, because of part one. Which is so great, we have to keep coming back to it. He can voluntarily respond to God's call because he's new, because he's no longer clothed as a bridesmaid whose dress accentuates every imperfection. Now he's clothed with Christ, arrayed in splendor, and presented as a pure and spotless bride. Isaiah has put on Christ, and behold, therefore he is now a new creation. The old has passed away, and the new has come because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, we could keep going, quoting scripture upon scripture of this glorious transformation. And here's the most glorious thing about having our guilt taken away and our sin atoned for. Now our condition, our guiltiness, has no bearing on our identity. For all time, I will be a child of God, beloved in the sight of God, no longer an enemy of God, but a son. And good fathers bear with their children, maturing and sanctifying them, but never forsaking them. I know that I have a Redeemer who is far greater than my capacity to mess things up. I have a Savior who takes all of my sin, all of my guilt, all of my shame, and says, yes, I know. I know that you're guilty, and that you're a wreck, and that you're terrible. And I've already taken care of it. Don't worry. I won't kick you to the curb because I love you. And we forget that all too much. And this is where the church comes in. This is your job, to remind each other of this truth. Why? Because the Lord has given each of you to each other. I need you to speak this truth that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I need you to preach that truth to my heart, because I forget it. I need to see the light of Christ in each of your lives. Why? Because the light of Christ in my life is small, and I need, you know, encouragement. This is what you need to do, to remind each other of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has saved you from your sins. And so as we wrap up our time in the Word this morning, it strikes strikes me that so much of the world is seeking an answer to guilt. This year, volume of self-help books and blog posts that downplay your guilt and try to rationalize away your faults just shows how desperate we are for deliverance. And everywhere you turn, there are people that are trying to show you how to live a guilt-free life. And there's quite simply no such thing as a guilt-free life. What Christians have is a life that takes guilt to the cross and watches it transformed in the love of Christ and so I want to illustrate that with one last story. I want to tell you about a man from Alabama whose guilt and mess were undeniable. He grew up in Alabama in the mid-60s, and he opposed desegregation, and eventually became a member of the KKK. By 21, he was, lit, he was a full-fledged terrorist uh, and racist. As a Klan member, he attempted to bomb the, the home of a Jewish businessman because he hated Jews. His, terrori- his terrorism landed him squarely in the crosshairs of the police, as you might imagine it would. And uh, he was arrested following a bloody shootout that uh, took the life of one of his accomplices. And he was sentenced to prison for 30 years for his actions, for his attempted murder as well as the shootout. He would escape from prison a number of months later um, and would be caught again only... Uh, in the following months by the FBI, following yet another shootout where another one of his accomplices was killed. A racist, a terrorist, a white supremacist, an attempted murderer. It's pretty messed up. Over the course of the next eight years in prison, his life would dramatically change as he began to read the Gospels. As he encountered God in the pages of his word, this man began to see his guilt and feel his shame, but he also came to know the freedom from the, guilt, uh, the grip of guilt and shame that comes from the gospel. This man's name is Tommy Terrence. Some of you might know him. He's now the president of the C.S. Lewis Institute uh, here in D.C., which runs the C.S. Lewis Fellows Program that our very own Dave Dorst, and I think John, you also did this um, uh, fellows program as well. Think about the change in the man. He went from a clansman to a clergyman. Only through the finished work of Jesus Christ. If this terrible man can be changed... His guilt taken away and his sin atoned for, how much more does the gospel change your guilt and your shame and your sin in the mundane things of life? I encourage you to go, go home and Google Tommy Terrence. That's spelled T-O-M-M-Y-T-A-R-R-A-N-T-S, okay? When you go home today, check him out. His story is amazing. Also check out the time when after he had gotten out of prison, after he had come to faith in the Lord, and after he had become a clergyman, he was confronted by one of the people that he bullied in high school. The story is amazing. Not only because of the change, but also because of the grace shown by both, both, both men. See what the Lord has done in his life and be encouraged that the same gospel that transformed him can also transform you. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you acknowledging that we are far worse than we think, that you are far more holy uh, than we can even imagine, and that we are far worse than we give ourselves credit for. Lord, would you reveal in us Uh, the magnitude of our sin, the magnitude of our rebellion against you, the magnitude of just how messed up we are. And Lord, will we not get stuck there, but uh, would we be moved by your word, uh, by the actions of your Son, who is not content to leave us in our sin, but came and paid the ultimate price for us. Lord, would the gospel not leave us in our guilt and shame, but transform us into the pure spotless bride, one that gives you all the glory and all the praise, that marvels at the transformation, that we might participate in your work in in this world. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.